it's disgusting, like the injustice and just the way that people operate and the way that people come with their preconceived notions and stereotypes and things of that nature before they even decide like, I'm gonna get, and they make that decision, like am I gonna give this person my full um, energy and, and my full knowledge and my full, you know, purpose. Hey family, I'm Omari Maynard and you're doing Life with Lakeisha on Living Her Truth. Welcome to the Living Her Truth podcast, where we have honest conversations about what it means to live a purpose-driven life. I am your host, Lakeisha Wooder from LakeishaWooder.com, the place where women receive the tools necessary to feel seen, heard, and supported while pursuing their purpose. And now every week, you'll learn those same tools through candid and transparent conversations. Hey family, welcome to another episode. I am so excited that you are here. I do not take it lightly that you decided to hit that play button and spend about an hour of your time with me. So with that being said, I want you to know that I'm 100% invested in your self-awareness journey. So you better believe that every week I'm bringing my A-game for providing you the tools necessary to live a more fulfilled and purpose-driven life. And today's episode is a really special episode because we're going to talk about something a little bit different from, I know, my normal um, conversations that I have in my inner circle or even with, you know, family and friends at large. And it's probably a little different from the conversations that you have as well. Today, I'm sitting down and having a conversation about the maternal health care crisis as it relates to Black women in particular. And I'm sitting down and having this conversation with this amazing brother. His name is Omari Maynard. And I know what you're thinking, right? You're thinking like, Keisha, how are you talking about a maternal health care crisis as it relates to Black women with a man, a Black man at that? And it's just like, he's the perfect person to have this to have this conversation with. You know, once you hear Amari's story, you're definitely going to, you're definitely going to understand why. Now, this particular episode, I am going to break up into two episodes. Because when I got, when I got on, on, the, on the call to have this conversation with Omari, the plan was to, you know, have a conversation for about 40 minutes. And it literally turned into like over an hour, probably like an hour and 30 minute conversation, um, give or take. And it was because I just really wanted him to share his story. I really wanted him to share his story. And so I thought about, you know, chopping and screwing it and, you know, taking some pieces out and and all of that. But I'm like, you know what, Keisha, this is your podcast, which means this is your show. So however you say it goes down is how it's going to go down. So I am pretty much leaving this episode uncut and unfiltered because we need to hear what Amari has to say, number one. And number two... I want to change the narrative of how our black men are portrayed in media, okay? Because Armari is a single father. And once you get into the conversation, you'll know why. But Armari is a single father. And he's a single black father who's raising his kids, who is taking care 
of his children. And I don't think that we see this enough. And I'm not saying that he's a, an anomaly. and He's the only black man out there taking care of his kids because he's not. There are plenty of black men out there taking care of their kids. Either they're married or they're widowed or they're just complete single fathers, you know, but they're taking care of their kids. And that's not necessarily the image that we see out here in these media straits. So this is Amari's truth. This is real life. So you're going to hear his babies in the background. You're going to hear how he's talking to his daughters with so much patience and love and kindness in his voice. And I decided to leave that in there instead of taking it out because we need to hear that. The world needs to hear a black man talking to his kids with love and affection. And we also need to hear how he is still advocating and supporting his queen who's no longer here. It is important for us to see that, not just for the people who don't look like me, but also for the people who do look like me, for the other black men and women who are out there, who's thinking that they are all alone and no one else is doing it. Or for all the black fathers out there who are taking care of their kids and feel as though nobody is giving them credit. I just want to say, I see you. I see you. So on this podcast, because this is my show, we're going to celebrate and we're going to acknowledge the black fathers out there who are holding it down. And we're going to celebrate them by me sharing Omari's story with you in its entirety. And in order you know, to do that, I'm going to split it up into two episodes. All right. So I pray that this episode touches you and blesses you in, in a way. I pray that it sparks of conversations, you know, within your, within your circle. I pray that it encourages you to have the conversation, especially if you are a, a mother. I pray that it, it sparks something in you to share your story, share your experience for the next sister who's about to have a child. Or someone like me who is yearning for a child and haven't gotten to that point yet. Because I learned so much from Amari's story that is just mind-blowing. Because I could have easily brushed it off as, you know what, I don't have kids yet. So, eh, uh-uh, you know. But it's like, no. Like, they say you, you, you're unable to prepare for children, right? Well, I feel as though having this conversation with Amari and getting educated on the maternal health care crisis, this is me preparing for motherhood. This is how I'm preparing for motherhood. It doesn't always have to be about the money that's in the bank. It's not all about whether or not I can make the nursery look amazing. It's not all about whether or not my child has 30 pairs of shoes in the closet or have a college fund already set up in his or her name. It's not only about that. It's about educating myself about the biases and the racial tensions that's out there that can prevent me from leaving the hospital with my child. This is how I'm preparing for motherhood. This is how we prepare. And for all the mothers out there who already have children, I just pray that, you know, this conversation encourages you to get the help that you need. So I know that was a mouthful, but let me go ahead and introduce Amari to you officially so we can go ahead and get into this 
conversation. And this is definitely a conversation that I really want you to listen to, listen to intently. And please share this conversation with everyone you know. Like seriously, I say this at the end of every podcast, but no family, seriously. Share this episode with everyone you know. And I want you to come back next week to hear the rest of the episode as well. So let me go ahead and officially um, introduce my new brother-in-love, Amari Maynard. Amari is an educator by trade and an artist by craft. He has received a bachelor's degree in marketing from Hampton University, an MBA and a master's in sports business management from the University of Central Florida, and a master's degree in special education from Long Island University. His professional career includes working for the NBA, various sports marketing companies, not-for-profit organizations, and the Department of Education. During these junctures in his career, he has met many people and done many things. However, throughout his journey, the most influential person that he encountered was Shamani Gibson. Amari met Shamani while working at the Police Athletic League in 2011. They quickly cultivated a friendship that eventually turned into a long-lasting relationship. Over the course of eight years, their relationship morphed into one that embodied growth, manifestation, and family. In 2016, they started their own business, Art for Living, a lifestyle and event planning business with an emphasis on artistic expression. On February 7, 2017, they had their first child, Anari Naja Abina Maynard. On September 23, 2019, they had their second child, Kari Nao Kojo Maynard. Shamani's transition has been a devastating blow to the family unit and community at large. However, her untimely passing has provided Amari with the drive to live his life as creatively and purposefully as possible. Amari currently works for the Department of Education, teaching high school algebra and geometry. He continues to grow and establish his business, Artful for Living. He is also in the process of creating a not-for-profit organization titled The Ari Foundation which stands for the Association of Reproductive Innovation Through Artistry and Healing. Family, introducing my brother-in-love, Amari Maynard. Amari, thank you so much for saying yes to having this conversation with me today. Thank you for having me, Lakeisha. I appreciate it for real. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait. It is, it is going to be awesome. It is going to be awesome. I'm super excited about this conversation. And I like to always start off with just talking about how I come to know the person that I'm speaking with. And so this episode is no different. And um, we have a mutual friend, Anna Bastidas, who is the owner and founder of Orderle. And she put a post up on LinkedIn saying that she was going to do this kickoff party called the Liquid Gold Kickoff Party. And I was like, okay, because, you know, Anna is really big into like breastfeeding, you know, because that's what her company is. is mm-hmm. And she was yeah. doing a particular event through, you know, Black Breastfeeding Week. First off, I didn't even know that was a thing. I don't have children yet. Yeah. Yeah, me neither. I didn't know either. <laughs> I didn't yeah. Know. yeah, I didn't even know it was a thing. And so Anna put up the post and she had your, your, your picture in the post. And I'm like... Hmm, Black Breastfeeding Week celebration, and we have a black man on the flyer. Let me read this. Let me read this post. And so I was like, okay, read a little bit about you and your story because she had like a snippet of your story. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna show up to the kickoff party. 
And oh my goodness, you painted this beautiful painting, this beautiful painting. And I was just like, oh my God, he's talented. Thank you. But Thank I, you. Yes, yes, you're talented. Thank it was it was beautiful, Amari. It was gorgeous. I appreciate it. And her a little bit more about your story. And I was like, oh yeah, I got to have him on the podcast because I want to get more of your story and then just bring awareness to um maternal health care and the crisis especially with yeah. um black women because like i said i'm not a mom yet but it's just so crazy how i've just been coming in contact with all of this information like just coming at me out of the blue you know and i'm just like okay instead of ignoring it and being like oh i'm not a mom yet so i'm not gonna worry about that right now i'm soaking it in omari i'm soaking it in you know because that's I'm, awesome yeah mm -hmm. I'm like, this is how you prepare right this exactly is definitely this is how mm -hmm. prepare for motherhood so i want to start the conversation for just you know you telling us about you and shamani's birthing story mm -hmm. uh so shamani and i we met uh back in 2012 uh, we actually worked at the same um, non-for-profit organization she was big she was just really into kids and you know working with children and i the same i grew up working with children i mean i've been working in some way shape or fashion educating and um through after school programs through you know teaching through uh daycare programs for pretty much all my life since i was about 18 years old mm -hmm. so about 20 years now and um yeah that's how we met so you know we met you know awesome she's an awesome person we ended up um seriously dating like in around 2016 and then like shortly after she got pregnant with our first child now um so the first child that we had anari you know her so shamani and her family um her mother specifically is was already just in the maternal health field like her mom was a big advocate. She started out doing social work and then she transitioned to creating her own business and organizations. Um, the organization that she has right currently is called Soul Leadership Group. And, um, you know, with that, she has, you know, rights of passage programs. And then she also does just a whole bunch of clinician work within school systems, within you know, companies, you know, coming in and doing professional developments and things of that nature. You know, so it was always kind of ingrained in Shamani, just in terms of understanding health and specifically black maternal health. And um, so, you know, with that said, you know, she was just well, way more versed and educated than I was within the field. But um, when we were having a NARI, you know, we had a doula, we had a, a midwife and midwifery service that we used we had like rotating doulas. So we had like six or seven doulas that we would see on a, like a bi-weekly to maybe monthly basis until she got, um, you know, until she was ready to deliver, which was awesome because it gives you a chance to, when you're at the hospital, it gives the doulas a chance to always kind of be on call, you know, because they would just rotate in and out. So that was cool. But the downfall of that is that you know, when you come in and you get attached to a certain duel and then you come back and there's somebody different, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's not the same kind of um, familial type of feeling, you know, community type of feeling that you would want 
especially, you know, just in a high anxiety, high, because we were, this is her first child, this is my second child, you know, so she was super excited, also super anxious, you know, just wanted that support. And um, so long, so with that said, you know, when we were in the hospital, um, she had to end up having a C-section with Inari, but, you know, um, it went well, everything was fine. Well, I should fine. It, it wasn't fine, <laughs> but she she was fine in terms of she made it out safe, and Anari made it out safe. But there were a whole bunch of issues around, you know, getting the epidural, kind of forcing us to make a decision that you know we weren't ready to necessarily make in terms of how long she should wait until you know she trying to dilate enough to try to have a natural birth, and then there were issues after um, Anari was. Um, you know, was birthed. She was eight pounds when she came out and still ended up in the NICU for some reason. They said that, you know, her sugar was low and there were just a whole bunch of issues. They said that she had something that was called sundowning um, where, you know, your eyes would kind of just kind of be all over the place, you know, but, you know, if you're first being birthed into this world, you know, those kind of, um, you know, those adjustments, you know, your body just hasn't made yet. Plus, you know, she's had this epidural in her system as well. So I'm sure, you know, there were issues around that as well, just in terms of how she was kind of functioning, but she was fine. You know, so she was in the NICU for a couple of days. Um, and, but, you know, all in all, once we got out of the hospital, we were like, yeah, we're not going back to this hospital and um, we're going to do this birthing experience differently. So, you know, fast forward two years later, uh, we had Kari September 23rd, 2019. And with Kari, we switched up our birthing, um, we, excuse me, we switched up our midwifery and doula service. Mm -hmm. You know, so we was, the doulas that we had were closer to the house. Um, it was a black organization, a black run organization. Um, and, you know, they were good. It was awesome, you know, in terms of, how they kind of structured things out. They had sessions where she would go and have group sessions with other mothers and fathers, or we would have group sessions, excuse me, with other mothers and fathers. And we'd go to the midwifery service to, you know, just share experiences and you know, get, um, you know, just get ideas, you know, build community. And then um, we had our doula come to the house. I want to say on like a bi-weekly basis, maybe a monthly basis, and she would do exercises with us, give us information, you know, um, provide us with, you know, pretty much whatever we, we needed, which was, which was great, you know. But the thing is, is with, and it's unfortunate, there are just so few Black-owned and run midwifery services just in general, like, I want to say out of all the midwifery services, the midwifery, midwifery and doula industry is 95% white, you know, even though this is a, this is a practice that has been started and founded and over thousands of years been run by African-Americans, well, Af African-Americans, but Africans and African-Americans, right? You know, until it got monetized and industrialized and now, you know, the table shift turns, you know, so just in Brooklyn alone, I want to say there's two midwifery services um, that are black owned and black run. And um, I want to say, I know there's none in the Bronx. I think there might be one in the city, like, 
but there is few and far between, you know. So with that said, you know, everybody stretched pretty thin, you know. So that was kind of the trade-off, you know. But with all of that, you know, our doula was the best. Our doula Simone, she's amazing. She's still, we still um, you know, get up and she still contacts me to, to today, you know, just asking about the kids and coming over every once in a while. And, you know, cause it's real community, you know, like we built a really strong bond, a, a relationship and a friendship, you know, through her providing services to the family, you know, so that's, so that's awesome. Um, so the plan was to have Kari at home, you know, cause we didn't want to deal with the hospitals anymore. We wanted to have an at home birth. You know, so we had everything set up and, you know, her water broke and we were ready, you know, ready to have this baby at the house, you know, so, um, you know, her water broke and then she stopped by dilating though. She wasn't dilating as fast, but not really as fast as much as we thought she should. So we waited and then our midwife told us to wait um, till the next day and we just waited as long as we pretty much could until it was like, all right, not, she's not dilating enough we need to go to the hospital, you know, but even while we were in the hospital, the plan was still to have a VBAC. And, you know, VBAC, if you don't know, is a, is a vaginal birth after uh, cesarean section, right? So in terms of having it done, Shimani was in the range of being able to do it. Um, they say that, you know, you need to wait two to three, two years at least out before you can have a VBAC from your previous birth. And then also you have to be in, um, the age range. So she was in both. So, you know, the likelihood of being able to do it was, was, you know, it was high. We, we were, you know, we were looking forward to doing it. You know, we're doing the exercises, taking the pills and the medicine, not really the pills, but the natural herbs and pills and stuff that they gave us to take in order to, you know, help the progression of the baby and make, and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, we were at the hospital and, you know, we waited and, you know, we waited and the hospital that we went to, they had a high um, rate of natural births. So, you know, we were excited and looking forward to, to that in terms of, you know, making sure that the numbers were on our side and that therefore understanding that, you know, the doctors and the nurses would be, you know, accepting of, of our wishes in terms of having this vaginal birth. Um, but, you know, after a while, she still wasn't dialing the way they wanted her to. And, um, we had to go in for a c-section so you know i was reluctant um she was as well but you know when you are waiting i, I want to say her, her water broke on the 21st excuse me the evening of the 21st maybe like early morning 22nd and we had carried you know the next day you know so um you know we waited for a while when she went in to get the c-section done though she was complaining that she had pains in her hand like it was the blood clot in her hand when they were trying to um, inject the medicine. You know, so that was kind of the first kind of, in hindsight, you know, that's kind of the first warning sign. And then during the C-section, the doctor decided that he also should take out these fibroids that she had. Now, so if you know, um, when you're getting fibroids taken out, that's a separate major surgery, you know, so, and to kind of backtrack just a little, um, when they were cutting her open, she had developed a webbing. So webbing is when you have a, when you have a, any major surgery, but in particular in this instance, when you have a C-section, and the first time, 
sometimes the um, tissue fuses together in a way that looks like web. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to get through the lining in order to get to the uterus, to get to the baby. You know, so with that said, it took them a little bit longer than usual to get to Kari. And then on top of that, you know, um, you know, on top of that, you know, he decided to take out these fibroids, you know, and at the time we were thinking like, you know, this is great. You know, she doesn't have to worry about having them. And, um, you know, we get it done one time, but like I said, it's a whole separate surgery. So all of that compounded, you know, left her open for a long time. Um, but, you know, Kari made it out safely and, you know, Shimani, you know, she made it back to the, to, to the, to her, to our room and made it out the hospital safely. But, um, you know, that was kind of the start of the ending, you know, um, she ended up developing, developing blood clots and at the time and again you know it, it it's kind of surreal and it makes it a little bit stings a lot more for me because like i said you know um you know in terms of understanding maternal health you know we had a better understanding than most because her mother was in the industry and, you know, we quest, so we knew about pulmonary embolisms. We knew about, you know, blood clots forming. We knew about the importance of the postpartum period is just as important, if even more important than, you know, the, the, um, the development of the child and then the delivery, you know, the postpartum is, you know, that's key, you know, and, um, you know, she was, so the first, the, with the Nari, she didn't take any medicine after, I don't know how she did it, but she didn't take, one, she didn't take any medicine after she had the C-section. And then two, she went, cause she was getting, at the time she was getting her bachelor's degree. And I wanna say may, like literally, maybe like a week or two after, not even two weeks, after she had the baby, she was back in, in class. Like it was crazy. Cause, the, cause one of the teachers that she had was like, yo, like, like you know these are your problems that like you gotta either come or drop out you know she was like i'm not dropping out you know so she toughed it out you know now <laughs> warrior i don't know how she did it she's a warrior though um but for this c-section you know it, you know it's a toll on the body it's a lot you know so it's a toll and you know um the recovery time or the way she was recovering was just a little bit slower and she the pain was more intense and you know, she needed to take the medicine, you know, so she took the medicine that they prescribed her for the pain. And, you know, she started complaining that she was having shortness of breath. And, you know, we were like, you know, well, maybe it's the medicine, maybe it's, you know, you doing too much because you doing too much, you know, she up and moving around and cleaning the house and wanting to do things and, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, it's say that again. Because, you know, we think we superwoman. Exactly, exactly, you know, but for all the women that are out there, and of course, you know, not this day and age, especially living in America, it's very hard to do this, but you're supposed to rest for 40 days after childbirth in order to have a full, clear recovery. You're supposed to rest for 40 days, you know. Now, is that, is it feasible? For most people, no, you know. And, and 
in order to do so, you have to, especially now, but even back then when this was the thing, you need to have the community around you. You know, you need to have people who are coming in, you know, taking care of the day-to-day -day household stuff, watching the other children. If you have other children, taking care of the needs of the baby other than that are outside of the breastfeeding, you know, piece, um, you know, making sure that there's food in the house, making sure that the house is clean. You know, you need a village, you need a tribe in order to get these things, these type of things done. You know, so um, that's also something to think about once you do have your child, just make sure that, you know, you have the community, you have family members who can help if you, and put it out there to them to let them know that this is what it is and this is what you want. If you are, if you have that, you know, capacity to do so. Um, so, you know, like I said, she was complaining about having shortness of breath and, mm -hmm. um, you know, but like I said, you know, and then we called the doctor, you know, we called, um, you know, the director at the hospital to tell them what was going on. And, you know, her, her thing was like, you know, maybe you need to just relax and chill out, you know, and, and her and her mother had conversations of maybe you're having a pulmonary embolism, maybe these things are going on, you know, in your body that we don't know. But, you know, ultimately it turned out to be like, you know, just rest, relax, if things get worse, then come in. You know, so now between, so we had Kari on, September 23rd and Shamani passed away on October 6th. So this is about a two week time span. So within that time frame, um, we went back to the hospital for Kari's follow-up visit in order for the hospital to try to push their products in terms of getting us on whatever plan that they have to keep us coming into the hospital so they can keep using her insurance. Um, and then during that time, you know, we did tell them about how Shamani was feeling, but you know, they're like, you got to do a separate visit for that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then we went back another time in order to take um, Shamani's dressing and because she had to get staples for a C-section so they could take the staples out, you know. And um, that was the following, I want to say that was probably, that was on like the 2nd of October, you know, so... Um, during that time, you know, same thing. We told them about what was going on. She told them, and you know, it's all right. If you feel better, if it gets worse, just call us or let us know. But there was nothing done at the time that we were in the hospital. So this is two visits to the hospital after we left, you know, and had to car carry home after he was delivered. Um, and then, like I said, she passed away on, on, she went into cardiac arrest on the 5th. And, you know, on the 5th, every, so let me backtrack a little. On the 3rd, mm -hmm. it was either the 3rd or the 4th, she went downstairs to lock the door of our house. And when she was coming back upstairs, she had sharp chest pains and she was pretty much screaming. She's like, she couldn't make it upstairs. And um, we called the doctor again and, you know, they were like, you know, just relax, you know, take it easy, kick your feet up, you know, just hopefully, you know, things will get better and then you'll be okay. Um, if things get worse, let us know. And um, at that point, again, hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, and, you know, um, and, you know, just the reflection of, you know, those last couple of days, I wish, you know, that I was, just like, you know what, let's just go to the hospital, you know, but 
in my mind, I remember the day, of course, I remember it vividly. I'm thinking like, like, you know, the doctor's not really saying, telling us that we have to go in. There's a lot of stuff that needs to get done in the house. You know, we got these two kids that we need to take care of, packing them up and getting them to the hospital and getting you there. It's a lot, you know, but of course, in hindsight, it's nothing, you know, it's nothing. It's nothing to go. So with that said, you know, if you are feeling any type of discomfort, unease, you know, and women know their bodies and they know what's going on and they know when they're feeling good and they know when things are not right. And if you just feel like things aren't right, just go to the hospital. Don't call. You can call and let them know you're coming, but go, you know, make sure that you get to the hospital because you just never, 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 never know. You know, and um, so on that day, she called her mom and then her mom reached out to the community and was telling them like, you know, Shamani is, you know, this pregnancy isn't as, this postpartum piece isn't as smooth as it was. So you need the family to come over, you know, just help out, help clean up, help. So she doesn't do it because if it's, if it's not done, she's going to try to do it, you know, so, you know, come over, bring some food, help clean up, just spend time, you know. And, you know, so for the, on October 4th, her best friend came over, um, her mom, who else was over here? I think her sister might've came over as well. And then on the, so, you know, we all chilled out, laughed, joked, ate, you know, have fun. And then the next day on the 5th, her, uh, her god sister came, her mom and her aunt were over here. And, you know, same thing, we laughing, joking, kicking, eating food, you know, just enjoying the company, enjoying the time. And uh, she, uh, she looked at me and was like, yo, I need to go to the hospital. Like, my chest is hurt. Like, I can't take it no more. I got it. Like, I got to go. Like, I'm feeling like I got to go. So I was like, all right, cool, no problem. You know, so especially once she said that, then, you know, I knew it was serious because she, like these last, those last couple of days, you know, she's never really asked to go. Like, we got to go right now. You know, so I, as I'm packing, I'm going to the front to pack up, you know, overnight bag or whatever, pack up some stuff. And then, you know, her mom and her aunt just start screaming, like screaming my name, like, Omar, come in here, come in, come in. So... I go in and, you know, she's in full cardiac arrest, you know, she's, um, um, you know, she's squirming, she's moving, I, I, like, it was, it was intense, it was a lot, and, you know, we were just trying to bring her back, and then eventually, you know, mom threw water on and she came back too, and, you know, we called the ambulance, and, it seemed like the ambulance took forever. I don't know how long. It, it could have been five minutes. It could have been 15 minutes. I don't even know. But it, they came eventually. And, um, you know, their whole thing was, you know, is, was she on drugs? Is she taking drugs? Like, what's going on with her? And we're like, yo, she, her, and her mother is telling them at this point, telling them, look, she's in cardiac arrest. She's having a pulmonary embolism. Yes, baby. Um, let your Uriah can make you one, okay, baby. Thank you. And she's um, and she's they're telling they're telling them like you know this is what it is. She's telling them that she's you know she's having a pulmonary embolism, and you know they're steady trying to take her pulse and trying to take her vitals and 
telling her, look, stop moving around, stop squirming, stop moving, you know, and I'm like, yo, like she's, and at this point, you know, she's fighting, she's literally fighting for her life, you know, she's fighting for her life, and um, she's squirming and moving and squirming and, you know, he's getting frustrated because he can't take the <laughs> thing properly, and then, you know, she just stops moving, and then it's like, and I'm holding her at this point. I'm holding her, trying to get her to calm down, trying to get her to relax. And, um, you know, she stopped moving. And, you know, they do chest compressions on her. They do chest compressions. Um, and then at that point, they call, like, muscle call back up, you know, because a whole other set of EMT workers came in and then the fire department came. So, I mean, at this point, we literally have about a good 10, 15 people in the house, you know, trying to get her pulse going, trying to get her heart going in. And then each set of people that come in asks us the same questions, you know, like not where vitals are asking her, is she on drugs? Did she take drugs? You can tell us. It's okay. Da, da, da. And um, it, was just, it was disgusting. It was disgusting. And, you know, and again, I'm not an EMT worker. I don't know what the protocol is, but I'm thinking if you are not getting the things that you need or don't have them here and you need more support, you need to just get the get us straight to the hospital. So I want to say from the time the first set of EMT workers to when they took her out, it was definitely like 20 minutes at least, at least for maybe 30. It was a long, it was a long time. And um, they were able to get, you know, a small pulse. So they transitioned her to the closest hospital. Now I live in Bed-Stuy, you know, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And, you know, in Bed-Stuy, you know, it's completely gentrified now. Like you can't get an apartment for cheaper than $2,000 in a one bedroom. Like, you know, um, there's a whole bunch of coffee shops everywhere, a whole bunch of places to spend your money and a whole bunch of thriving, small businesses as well as big businesses in the area now. But in terms of the infrastructure of the school system and the hospitals that are in the area, they have not, they haven't um, <laughs> reaped the benefits of this now bustling neighborhood that once was, you know, that once was, you know, Bed-Stuy do or die, you know. So um, the closest hospital, they, 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 the closest hospital to us was in the part is still and it continues to be in the process of being defunded. So they don't have the same resources as other hospitals um, in you know the Brooklyn area. So when we got there, again, they spent, I don't even know, another 30, 45 minutes trying to just diagnose them with telling. And it was I remember one doctor saying, like, look, she's having a pulmonary embolism. And at this point, there's like 10. Uh, there's literally 10, 10 doctors and nurses around her, you know, trying to take vitals, doing this, right? Oh, we got to test for this. We got to test for that. We got it. And she's telling them, look, this is what's happening. This is what we need to do, you know? And um, at this point, so with pulmonary emblems, they're just, they're super easy to prevent, honestly. Like if you just get blood thinners, you know, and that's it, you know, but at this point, she, you know, she's been in full cardiac arrest. She's coded at this point, maybe five or six times. And if you don't know what code, coding means, coding is when, 
you know, your heart stops and it starts again and stops. So when it stops, it's, it's coded. Um, so she's coded about five or six times. And um, they're giving her blood thinners, you know, but at this point, you know, the clot has already done its damage, you know. And they didn't have, like I said, this, this, the hospital that we went to, they, they didn't, it's known to, you go in there, you're not coming out, right? Because they don't have, they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the resources, they don't have the unit, they don't have the personnel, you know? So, um, and it was same thing in this case, they didn't have the tools or the unit in order to like physically take out the blood clot. So what had to happen was that she had to have a strong enough pulse as well as a strong enough heartbeat um, in order for them to transition her to a different hospital that had, you know, the proper, the proper unit. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that didn't happen, you know, so they, um, she stayed in the hospital for about 14 hours before they, you know, before they determined her deceased. Um, wow. And it, it was, of course, you know, like it goes without saying, that's a day that I'll never forget, but um, Absolutely. it goes to just show you like, there's just so many things that we have to deal with as, you know, black and brown and indigenous people that, um, that is just, it's, it's disgusting. Like the injustice and just the way that people operate and the way that people come with their preconceived notions and stereotypes and things of that nature before they even decide like, I'm gonna get, and they make that decision. Like, am I gonna give this person my full um, energy and, and my full knowledge and my full, you know, purpose for doing what I'm doing as a, you know, as a clinician, as a someone, or as an EMT worker, as somebody who is paid and schooled in order to do the, the, do the work, or am I just going to, you know, be upset or just act like uh, this isn't, uh, you just already know what the, what, what the outcome or, or what's going on without really understanding who these people are like you just know she's on drugs right you just know that you know she's probably not going to make or you just know she's probably not in that much pain so she could you know hold off or you know or you just know that she doesn't have the proper insurance so let me not go as hard as i need to like you know so um that's you know it's really really that's really really sad because it sounds yeah. like you know her life could have definitely been saved you know definitely uh, definitely a week before that that traumatic day and i hate that you had to to go through that because it's, it's taking everything in me just not to get like super emotional just to sit here and to to listen you know to your to your your story you know and shamani's you know story because you're right there were so so many injustices just in there and you know mm -hmm. i'm telling the story i'm sitting here and i'm thinking i'm like you know so you're just going to come in and just assume that she's on drugs like exactly. why, why does it take 10 fire trucks and ambulances to come you know when you could have just immediately just took her to the hospital like mm -hmm. right hindsight is hindsight is always it's always 2020 but that is just uh that's just a horrible horrible experience and you talk about so much that i'm you know 
learning like i'm learning because again i'm not a mom yet but just listening to the story is just making me more aware and it's teaching me because i i have i have girlfriends that have kids i have sisters with, with children like we don't have these type of conversations you know and yeah. i talked about the fact that um they wanted to rush her because she wasn't dilating fast enough because i've even heard how you know, doctors tend to schedule C-sections, just automatically schedule women for C-sections according to their schedule, not even giving mm -hmm. them the option to have exactly. natural exactly. birth, which is, yeah. which is so horrible. Now, I, I can completely understand that what you've gone through, you know, is a main reason of why you become an advocate for maternal health crisis. But you didn't have to, though. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to do this, but what, what made you say, I'm going to become an advocate and I'm going to make sure that, you know, Shamani's story is her and other women doesn't have to go through what she went through. Like what was, what made you um, to be an advocate? I, I think, I think the, the biggest thing was for me is just the impact of Shamani and just the impact that she had on, on my life. Like, um, so relationships are tough, you know, and our relationship wasn't perfect. Like I, I can tell you that it wasn't perfect, you know, but the thing about Shamani and me and our relationship is that we both knew that we were flawed and we were both working on being the best partners that we can be for each other, you know, so you know, with that said, um, you know, again, even that's hard, you know, because like you really got to be like, you know, like I'll, this is what I suck at or this is what I'm not good. You like you really got to be vulnerable and let, you know, and, and, and honest, you know, like because nobody's perfect, you know, but in terms of relationship, people try to act like it's somebody else's fault or they didn't do this right. And this is why I'm acting like that. And you know, of course, we had those moments as well, but, you know, um, she was just really big on making sure that, you know, we put systems in place to hold each other accountable and to really build this, you know, a family, you know, so, um, you know, we would go to therapy all the time. You know, we started our, our business together called Art for Living in 2017, you know, and at the time was really kind of based around, like, doing, like, paint parties and events and, um, art installations, things of that nature for the community, you know, but even with that, like starting a business with somebody and tying, you know, the business, the business funds and, and just the business experience in terms of this is the idea that I have, this is the idea that she has, I don't want to do this, but because she's my business partner, we're going to do it like that. And, and, you know, she's my, you know, my, my partner, so I got, I better do it, you know, but like it, it was different compromises. So there were different things that we would do business-wise. Like even if we were not feeling each other in terms of the relationship, we still had to come together to do certain things in, in partnership, you know? And with that, like it just built a much stronger bond between us because, um, you, know, um, you know, those things transition. Like we may not be talking to each other, but we just made, two stacks you know so we happy you know and you know we're gonna celebrate and then you know those things turn into like you know you got to do stuff with your partner you got to create with your partner you gotta you know you gotta step out on a limb and you gotta take those L's sometimes we 
you know, maybe made $20 off an event and put a hundred and change in it and it sucked, you know, but we learned these things together and, you know, we transitioned and built on these things with each other, you know, so that was just small, one small part of it. But I just say all of that to say that, you know, I was connected to her in a way that I was never connected to anybody else before, you know, so, um, you know, with that said, you know, before, like right before she passed, it was like, I was really kind of feeling like, all right, we're getting to a point where um, we can really kind of build and grow and do this family thing and really kind of be there for each other, you know, like, like, no, take all the superficial stuff out and like, let's really do this, you know, we really gonna do this. And then unfortunately, you know, um, it didn't happen like that, you know? So I think that that's a huge part. So for me, like, I feel a part of me feels like, you know, I, I still, cause we still have a plan. We made this plan, right? We made this pact and, you know, it still needs to be fulfilled. She's not here, but I still gotta, I gotta, I gotta fulfill it, you know? So the business, you should need me something for it. Okay, it's okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, and um, so, like I said, you know, so the plan still needs to be fulfilled, you know, so, and, you know, we still communicate, we still are in conjunction, you know, but it's just on a different level, you know, and I can't do this by myself, you know, and I, I can't say like, all right, she's not here. So, you know, it's over, you know, because that's not the case, you know. So, you know, the business is still running, it's transitioned a little bit and I've taken it in different ways, but, um, you know, she's still here advocating just alongside me, you know? Um, so, like, I, I feel like there was, there was never in my mind that, you know, I didn't have to. Um, it wasn't really in my mind that I had to, it was just, I'm doing, you know, I'm just doing it. I'm doing it and I'm going and, I'm on the ride, you know, I'm, I'm here, like, this is it, you know, because this is what it's supposed to be, you know? Um, so that's why I'm, I'm in it. And then also too, after she passed, like our community is just, I'm just so blessed to be able to know the people I know and, and be connected with her family and the people that her family knows because, you know, like I was just supported in such a way that, you know, it was the best possible way somebody could be supported in the worst possible type of situation, you know? And I know, like, I know, like, without a shadow of a doubt that I'm lucky. And I also know without a shadow of a doubt that other people are just, they don't have that infrastructure, you know? They don't have those circles. They don't have that community. Ooh, now do you see why it was important for me to allow Amari to give his his whole to tell his whole story now do you see why i felt as though it was important for shamani's truth to be heard like i just think this is just so it's so amazing how he is such an advocate for his queen even after she's gone right and how he's you know taking her her death and and made it not be in vain by doing something to empower you and I, sis, by educating us and telling us about the resources that are out there and what to look for and how we can stand up and advocate for ourselves. 
you know? So listening to his story, I just had to sit back and and, and just listen, you know? Like if you're watching the, the video version of this, you can catch it on my YouTube channel or you can catch it on Facebook. I'll put the links in the show notes. Like you're going to be tripping out over my facial expressions of, of how all this transpired, right? Because I know you guys probably heard about Serena Williams, you know, who had problems, um, well, necessarily like problems, but she had to really be adamant about advocating for herself because the doctors wouldn't listen to her and come to find out she had a blood clot that she could have easily died from. So it's the thing, black women not being heard, okay, during childbirth or after childbirth, it's, this is a real thing and this is a real issue and we need to talk about it more. And we definitely need to talk about it in our inner circles. So this is me helping you to start the conversation. Share this episode with everyone you know and start talking about it. Start asking questions. Start doing your research. Who in, who in your inner circle needs an advocate? Help that mother, help that father to become the best advocate. Like we need to rally together, right? Because if we don't rally together, who's going to rally for us? We need to join Amari in this fight, right? We need to join Amari in this fight. So you guys, please come back next week to listen to the second half of my conversation with Omari. All right. And, and again, please share this episode with, with everyone you know. Family, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast every single week. If you need support in your self-awareness journey, then head on over to LakeishaWheeler.com forward slash coaching for more information. Also, please note that all Audible recommendations are linked in the show notes, which are below, and you can also try Audible for free. Please remember to leave a five-star rating, a comment, and once again, share with everyone you know across all all your social media platforms. Let's talk about this, family. Let's start the conversation everywhere, all right? And family, you already know, I have this super-duper, uber-lofty goal to touch one million hearts within the next two years, and I can only do it with your help. So please remember to download each episode, share, and talk about the episodes, your favorite episodes here on Living Her Truth with everyone you know. Family. I appreciate you. My heart is filled with so much gratitude. And until next time, always remember that you are enough and your truth is beautiful.